The sermon text for the day is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 21 is the next to last chapter of the whole Bible. So if you want to find it in yours, just go to the end and then flip back a page or two and you'll be there. It's really easy to find this week. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To those who are thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have here beside me a can of Sprite. When I was a child, Sprite was my favorite beverage. When we would go to McDonald's, which wasn't very often, uh, I would always get Sprite as my drink of choice. I often got Big Macs, too. I really liked the, the uh, Thousand Island dressing on them. I don't know. Um, Big Macs and Sprite. That was, you know, for my 8 and 9 and 10 year old body, that was pretty good. Sprite. Are you thirsty yet? I know, right? Yeah. You know the long term slogan for Sprite? Obey your thirst. Right? You know that? You've heard that before? Obey your thirst. Funny thing about Sprite, do you know how much sugar is in a can of Sprite? Take a guess. How many grams of sugar do you think are in this can of Sprite? Not 100, Tyler, not 100. 45. Not quite 45. 38. 38 grams of sugar in a can of Sprite. The nice label on the back tells us that that is three quarters of how much sugar you're supposed to have in a day. One can of Sprite. 38 grams. Now, the funny thing about sugary beverages that we're all craving now, is, that, or maybe not, is that the more you drink of them, the thirstier you get. You know this phenomenon? Sugar is something that causes you to be thirstier. Caffeine does too. This doesn't have any caffeine. 
which might've been why I liked it. I don't know. But uh, other drinks like Coke or Dr. Pepper or Pepsi that do have caffeine also make you mellow yellow, especially in Mountain Dew, make you thirstier because of the caffeine that's in them in addition to the sugar, right? This is, this is the nurses in the room are nodding. Okay, so we're, we're all saying the same thing here. This is good. Um, science, right? So the more you drink, the more you want to drink. It's an incredible marketing tool, and they've done pretty well for themselves, those uh, companies that have produced these things. 38 grams of sugar in one can of Sprite. 38 grams is about three tablespoons of sugar. And that much of a drink. Three tablespoons. I'm going to leave that right there. Wow. When you factor that we get 10 cent rebate. Oh, good. We're still on. Good. Um, a 10 cent rebate. And you think, you know, this can is worth more to me empty than it is full. So I might as well drink it. Right? So there are so many motivations for us to consume these kinds of beverages. You can obey your thirst by drinking this can of Sprite. But your thirst will never be truly satisfied. You don't even always realize when your body is thirsty. You know the sensation of being thirsty, and they say, again, nurses can check this out with me, I guess, uh, by the time you realize your thirst, it, you've been thirsty for a long time, right? It's, it, you should have had something to hydrate yourself way before then. Physical thirst is really easy to detect, but sometimes we aren't even aware that it's there. We can experience a spiritual thirst as well. And it's usually even harder to detect in ourselves. Sometimes you know when you are spiritually thirsty. Like when you are physically thirsty, there are certain signs, certain symptoms, maybe that you could list out. You know that there is uh, an emptiness inside your soul and you need something to fill you up. But by the time you get to that point, you probably have been missing out on a lot of soul hydration up to that point in time. Spiritual thirst is when you need something of substance, something of great value to the health of your being. And that thing might be called many different things. You might need God in your life or Jesus or the spirit or love or peace or joy or well-being, centeredness, quietness, assurance, confidence, friendship, even self-esteem or self-worth. There are many, many kinds of spiritual thirsts that we experience. And I believe that everyone is spiritually thirsty, sometimes more so than at other times. But it affects all of us, just like physical thirst affects all of us from time to time. And the, no matter how much water you drink, you will become thirsty again. And the same is true spiritually. The, the more you get fed spiritually, the more you will need it later on. It doesn't stay with you forever. You need to be continually nourished, continually spiritually hydrated. The best and only hope for our spiritual thirst to be quenched is to be rooted in the spring of living water that Jesus provides for his people. That spring of living water is what Jesus promises here in Revelation 21. 
I would like to suggest that the main emphasis of Revelation 21, and perhaps the main emphasis of the whole book of Revelation, is not about the end of time and how things will work at the final judgment and the return of Jesus, although those are important topics in the book. But I'd like to suggest that the main emphasis, especially of this chapter, is on how God makes all things new even now in the midst of our spiritual thirst. Now to unpack this chapter, we have to understand a little bit about where it comes from. Revelation is full of a type of literature called apocalyptic literature. And uh, it's a type of literature that John, the author of Revelation, did not invent. He was using a form of literature that was very common, relatively common in his day and age. It had been around for a few centuries. And there were many examples of it that he could draw from. And in fact, he did. The, The language that he uses here is quoting and referencing really blatantly in some cases, some of these earlier examples of Jewish apocalyptic literature. The notion of a new heavens and a new earth is something that he drew from in earlier writings. The renovation of the old order of things and the arrival of the new order of things. Even the idea of a new Jerusalem being unveiled when the Messiah arrives. All of these are common themes in Jewish apocalyptic literature that existed when John sat down to write this. And all of these examples of apocalyptic literature, literature that pulls back the curtain, reveals something that had been hidden. That's what apocalyptic means. All of this, all of this example of literature is not pointing to the end of the world, but as its primary focus, but it's pointing primarily to a time when God will live with his people and then things will be right. That will happen to coincide with the end of things, but that's not the primary concern. It's about God coming to dwell with his people. And this is an old, old, old hope of the people of God, that God would dwell with them. You can trace it all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, the third book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. In Leviticus 26, God says, I will put my dwelling place among you. And that had been the hope for the people of Israel from that point forward. I will put my dwelling place among you. And so as time went on, they found ways to embody that hope, to embody that promise. The tabernacle, which was a tent that was mobile and moved with the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness on the way to their promised land. The tabernacle was understood to be the place where God's presence dwelled. So God was living among them. And then finally, when they got settled in their inheritance, in their homeland, eventually they built a temple in the city of Jerusalem. And the temple was to replace the tabernacle. No more was God wandering. Now God is permanent and fixed and set right there in that building. That was the place where God's presence was to dwell forever. So when the Israelites gathered to worship God at the temple, they were not simply meeting with each other and renewing friendships and catching up on what had happened in the past week. No, they were meeting with God in the place where God's presence dwells. Worship is no small event. So maybe it's good that we left a little room up front. 
But there was a problem. Even though the Israelites met with God, their lives were still marked with death and mourning and crying and pain. Meeting with God did not make everything perfect in their lives. The Israelites enjoyed peace and prosperity for a time, but when they took their eyes off of God, when they relied on their own strength or their own resources, they began to falter. Foreign nations rose up and conquered them and carried them off into exile. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And yeah, in a generation or so, the Israelites came back home and the temple was rebuilt, but it was never quite the same. As the centuries dragged on, as nation after nation came to power and dominated that piece of real estate, which is still kind of a hotbed of people wanting to have control of things today, something about three continents converging in one place, who knew that it would be, uh, that it would be important to take control of. As, as the centuries moved and the people were oppressed and conquered by so many other foreign groups, the Israelites began hoping for one final release, one final movement from God. The arrival of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Christ and Messiah are the same word. They mean the same thing. They just have different root languages. And they both mean the one that God will anoint or has anointed. And this hope for a Messiah was the hope for someone who would come and be rid of all of these other influences and establish God's people in their homeland forever. The one who would make everything right once and for all. This was the hope that undergirded all Jewish apocalyptic literature, including Revelation. Now, Revelation is similar to a lot of its predecessors in this genre because of its hope for a, a Messiah that will come. But the one thing that makes it stand out from the rest, Revelation makes the startling claim that the Messiah is not coming in the future. The Messiah has already come. Where other people who were writing, hoping for the Messiah to come, looked for something in the future, John sat down and said, it's already happened. The people's hope has already been fulfilled. Jesus is already making things new now. It is done. The words that Jesus says in this passage. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first letter and the last letter of the Greek language, the language of the New Testament. I am the A and the Z. In other words, if there's anything you want to say about what God is going to do in this world, I cover it all. You can't say anything without referring to me. I'm, I am the whole alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end, he says. Or maybe I am the source and the destination. It's another fair way to translate those terms. The beginning and the end. The source, the destination. Everything comes from Jesus and everything is going to Jesus. John wrote these words around the year 90 AD, um, 60-ish years, 50 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Some decades had gone by. And in that intervening time, the world had fallen apart again. 
Because the temple, where Jesus did a lot of his preaching and some of his miracles and things like that, the temple outside of which Jesus was crucified, about 40 years after that, that temple was destroyed, flattened by the Romans this time, who came in and leveled the city and the temple. And, and now, where is God? And about 20 years after that, John sits down to write these words to bring hope to people's hearts. To say that God will dwell with his people again. But not by pointing forward to a time as the only solution, but by pointing back to the time when Jesus was here. God has already come to live with his people. We don't need the temple anymore. The word has become flesh and moved into our neighborhood has made his dwelling among us. That's from the very first chapter of John, the Gospel of John, written by the same person who wrote these words. The word Jesus has already moved into the world. Jesus is making all things new right now. Even in the midst of the destruction of the temple. Even in the midst of death and mourning, of crying and pain. Hardship and sorrow are part of the human experience. But God dwells with his people. God dwells with his people in the midst of that hardship and sorrow. We know that this is true today because Jesus has already come into this world and has experienced hardship and sorrow himself. We often talk about the death of Jesus as the thing that takes away our sins. All well and good. But something else happened when Jesus died. Jesus fully participated in the human condition by being betrayed and tortured and executed on the cross. Jesus knows suffering and loss. And then Jesus redeemed all of those experiences by being raised from the dead on the third day. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, God is making everything new, even now. Even in the midst of our sorrow and pain, 2,000 years later. Even in the midst of our spiritual thirst. Jesus lived with his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven. And then just 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, which is two weeks from today, We'll remember it two weeks from today. The Holy Spirit of God was given to the disciples as a constant reminder of the presence of God in their midst. Through the Holy Spirit, God continues to dwell with God's people. And through John's writing, God continues to give hope that one day this dwelling of God with humanity will be made complete and perfect. One day, just as in the resurrection of Jesus, death and mourning and crying and pain will be done away with forever. There will be no more separation between God and humanity. One day, we are living in that in-between time between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, where we still wonder where God is. But Jesus has shown us the answer to where God is. And it is right here, right now.
in this in-between time, Jesus gives water to those who are spiritually thirsty. Water without cost. Do you hear that? Without cost. You can't buy this. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's water without cost. Water which quenches our deepest spiritual thirst. Water that comes from the spring of life. The spring of living water. This water has life in it. Jesus does not give us Sprite. Because this will not quench our thirst. It won't even quench our physical thirst, let alone our spiritual thirst. Jesus gives us a water which moves us one step closer to the realization of our final hope, which is to be united with God forever. The water doesn't come out of a fountain machine or it's not found in a 12-ounce can or a plastic bottle. The living water of Jesus is found through dwelling in the presence of God. Now the dwelling of God is with people and he will live with them. Jesus is the source and the destination. We can find meaning in the midst of our sorrow and pain by dwelling in the presence of God. And you know, when we are full of living water, when we see other people experiencing sorrow and pain, we can help them by dwelling with them in the presence of God too. Not by shouting scriptures and platitudes and thoughts and prayers at them as if we were spraying them with a fire hose, but by bringing them the living water of Jesus embodying the presence of Jesus in love and patience and compassion. So friends, take time this week to pay attention to your spiritual thirst. Consider the ways that you try to quench that thirst or ways that you try to ignore it. And then talk with someone that you trust about what you need in your spiritual life. It's not an individual journey that you are on. And as you talk about your needs, listen to the other person's needs as well and realize that God is with you as you talk and give thanks to God for his presence in that conversation. The amazing thing is that the more you dwell in the presence of God, the more you want to dwell in the presence of God. The more you drink of the living water, the more you recognize your thirst and the more you want to drink. It's almost like an addiction, like drinking a can of Sprite, except this living water is really, really good for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks that you are the source of living water, that you are the source of life and that you are the destination of our souls. Help us in this time to be aware of your presence and to rely on you for our nourishment and for our spiritual hydration. Forgive us for the times when we have, when we have sought after earthly things, worldly things, even our, own, even our own power to keep ourselves on the right track or to mask that spiritual need and help us to turn back to you again so that our thirst might be quenched by your love and your presence.
Give us grace, Lord, as we walk these days together to find you in the midst of our lives and to share you with those whom we meet along the way. We give you thanks for all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.